Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferrans. Well, it's President's Day, a day set aside for many to reflect on Washington and Lincoln. But for this show, we talk to the president of the Tennessee AFL-CIO and later a political science professor on how unions can protect our democracy. Welcome to the Monday, February 20th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least six platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora and Stitcher. We have two guests on the show today. It's only appropriate that we have a president on on President's Day, and that would be Billy Dykus, who's president of the Tennessee AFL-CIO. Website real simple, tnaflcio.org. Billy's going to talk about the work in Tennessee, what Ford is doing with a $5.6 billion investment to build the electric Ford F-150. Where unions go from here, well, you may recall that in Tennessee, the voters decided to enshrine right to work into their constitution. So what does that mean? Good news is they're doing a lot of organizing. In fact, union membership ticked up in Tennessee, and we'll talk about that. Later in the show, we're going to check in with Jacob Grumbach. Now, Jacob is an associate professor of political science at the University of Washington in Seattle. He's done a lot of research investigating the political economy of the United States focusing on democracy and inequality. And I caught him in a recent uh, article by The Nation magazine titled Protect Democracy by Bolstering Organized Labor. And he points out the ranks of organized labor, not what they used to be. He said labor unions don't often come up with discussions about American democracy, but they should Unions have sometimes stood in opposition to democracy and civil rights, and he's going to point that out on how that happened. However, there's a lot of organizing going on right now. Unions have revitalized themselves, especially with young people, so this is a time for change, and young people want to protect their democracy. That's what it's all about. So Jacob Grumbach will be joining us as our second guest right here on America's Workforce. Well, as I indicated, today is President's Day. A day pretty much set aside to honor the 46 people who served in the White House since America became America. Well, two of those presidents, Washington and Lincoln, were born this month. Lincoln on the 12th, Washington on the 22nd. Now, let's be honest. History has treated both of them very, very well. Other presidents, well, a different story. So in prepping for the show, I came across a clip from one of my favorite people, Tommy Buffenbarger, former general president of the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers. Well, get this. Tom was at a day of action rally. We're going back to uh, 2007 in Washington, D.C., when George W. Bush was president. Well, Tom used the opportunity to reflect on some of the occupants of the White House that pretty much left a lot to be desired. Let's listen. Number 39, Andrew Johnson, blocked reconstruction after the Civil War, vetoed civil rights legislation, and barely survived impeachment. At number 40, we have Franklin Pierce, 
failed to avert the Civil War, watched helplessly as the Union pulled apart at the seams, and he died from alcoholism. At number 41, we have James Buchanan, failed to act during the succession crisis in 1860, leaving it all to his successor, played a role in the infamous Dred Scott decision, and was prone to depression. At number 42, we have Warren Harding, a corrupt and short administration best known for the Teapot Dome scandal, another oil scandal. Harding said, I am not fit for this office and should never have been here. So true and so sad. So look around, brothers and sisters. Do you see any monuments on this mall to Johnson, Harrison, Pierce, Buchanan, or Harding? Of course not. Abject, utter failures are not heroic figures in American history. They're pissants. These are men of insignificant stature, Webster's definition. These five men are pathetic political hacks who took the greatest gift a free people could give anyone, the presidency of the United States, and each one wasted it. They shrank in fear and trembling from doing the right thing at the right time for the right reasons for the people who elected them. So fast forward to the man in the White House today, and of course that's Joe Biden, probably one of the most union-friendly presidents ever, even more so than FDR because FDR was not really a big fan of public sector unions. Biden is. Many labor experts and union leaders say, the administration's unilateral actions on labor policy have moved the needle on unions more than previously thought possible. From installing Marty Walsh as labor secretary, to outfitting the National Labor Relations Board with union alums, to issuing union-friendly executive orders. I mean, he's done it all. Steve Rosenthal is a former political director at the AFL-CIO, and he served in the Labor Department during the Clinton administration. Steve said, it's been absolutely extraordinary. Biden has kicked the door down. Even on the Hill, the administration has managed to eke some pro-union policies past Republicans, even modern Democrats, including language in the bipartisan infrastructure bill that requires contractors to pay prevailing wages. All good stuff. So let's go to Biden's State of the Union address, which was just 13 days ago. What did he do? Biden salutes a female iron worker sitting next to his wife, Jill. As a member of Local 44, the iron workers, she's part of the team that will rebuild the Brent Spence Bridge, the result of those labor protections in the bipartisan infrastructure law. And the day after that, what does Biden do? He visits a Lyuna training facility in Wisconsin. And this is part of what he said. My American plan, my economic plan is for the middle and working class Americans that get up every morning, go to work, and bust their necks just trying to get an honest living. You know, my dad used to have an expression. He wasn't a college guy. He regretted he never got to go to college. But my dad worked like hell. My dad used to say, I mean this sincerely, and all the kids in the family know it. He'd say, Joey, a job's about a lot more than a paycheck. It's about your dignity. It's about respect. It's about able to look your kid in the eye and say, honey, it's going to be okay, and mean it, and mean it. Look, 
I've said many times, Wall Street did not build this country. The middle class built the country, and unions built the middle class. Certainly getting the applause that he deserves. You know, one of the people in the audience that day in uh, Wisconsin was Tony Kurkowski, who's a highway worker in Milwaukee and a union member, of course. He said he was pleasantly surprised by the president's visit and the president's focus on workers. He said, with a lot of politicians, it's easy to take the vote for granted, and once they get in, they have their own priorities. But but it's good to see he's coming back to labor. It certainly is, Tony. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Billy Dykus of the Tennessee AFL-CIO. This is America's Workforce. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at BoydWatterson.com. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The, the United, United Steelworkers. Steel the largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the US, US, Canada, and, and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steel workers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. Now... Back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And, of course, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. Let's go to line number one. Welcome back to the show. We had him on some months ago, probably within the last year. Billy Dykus is his name. He's president of the Tennessee AFL-CIO. Website is tnaflcio.org. Today is President's Day. So it's only appropriate that we talk to a president. doesn't have to be a president of the United States, president of the Tennessee AFL-CIO. Billy Dykus, how are we doing today, brother? Uh, good afternoon. I'm, I'm uh, uh, sometimes, as we say in the South, finer than frog hair. <laughs> in the heart of Tennessee. I love it. Billy has served uh, eight years as president of the Tennessee AFL-CIO and he started as a steel worker. I love the line that you uh, that you told me. You got to share that with your listeners. Now you were in the in the rubber workers union, and then they merged with the steel workers union. That was back in the mid nineties. What what was your line that you uh, that you said? Well, they wanted to merge with us because they knew that uh, us rubber workers would keep that steel on the road and make them competitive again. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of steel in a car. There's no doubt about that. I love that. Absolutely. So, uh, Absolutely. I guess some congratulations are in order because uh, the union density numbers came out recently. 
And uh, nice little bump there in the state of Tennessee. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot you have to deal with. I'll get into right to work in a little bit. But talk to me about the organizing there, brother. Well, I, I think that, uh, you know, I did an interview uh, with the Chattanooga Times Free Press last week, and they were asking the same questions. And, and what I told them is uh, I think that, especially after COVID, that a, pot, a lot of people started to realize that, uh, you know, they didn't really have as many rights as they thought they had as workers and that these, these companies made them called them essential workers to force them into work. And, uh, and I think that made people start to look around and say, Hey, wait a minute, you know, there's an alternative to, to just being a, uh, average guy at the, at the factory or at the restaurant, you know, I want something more, and I want to have a voice in the workplace. And and, and I think they've started to reach out and and, and search for a union that uh, they feel will represent their interest. In, and I think that's made a difference. And, and the other thing is too is I, it, it's the young people. Uh, the young people, uh, really and truly, may change the way we work in this country, uh, similar to the way that that our forefathers in the labor movement changed the way we worked in this country. Um, you know, we, you know, especially since, since the nineties, uh, we saw manufacturing go from, you know, a, a, a eight hour day to 12 hour shifts, uh, seven, tw- 24, seven operations, uh, where, you know, like myself, when I worked at, the, at the tire plant, you know, every other weekend I worked Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Mm-hmm. And uh, twelve hours, and and a lot of times that was on night shift, and I, and I think these young people uh, are stepping back, saying, "Hey, wait a minute, you know, my time, my my time on the weekends is important to me. It's important to me for my own well being, but it's also important for me to spend time with my family." And and uh, I, I think they're starting to stand up and and make their voices heard, and, and uh, you know, to their credit, they're they're they have become organized and, and they're good activists uh you know and and that and i think that's i think that's good for the country and i think that's good for labor so what kind of numbers what kind of boost did we see in the state of tennessee i, I think the uh the total number now is up to about one hundred and sixty-three thousand public and private sector union uh members and i think we saw a, i think it was 38 percent increase that's really good, and that's primarily in uh, in younger folks. I, I know eighteen to twenty four, a lot of interest in unions. Is that the demographic we're looking at right now? That that's, that has a lot to do with it, and we've also seen a lot of movement uh, with the auto industry uh, here in the, the state. Um, you know, the, the Spring Hill plant, the GM plant, um, has uh, boosted its production and added members, and of course. The construction industry here in the state is, is just really gone crazy. And and the new Blue Oval, which is the Ford um, manufacturing facility that will be online before long, that's 32 square miles of of training center and, and plant operations that will employ 5,000 union members in the future. So uh, it's been a, a multitude of things, but I think the biggest uh, growth has been in with the young people uh, you know, the uh, Starbucks issues and, and the other uh, uh, 
entities that they are working to try to push, especially in the service industry. Let's talk a bit about uh, that Blue Oval project. That's huge, 32 square miles. That, that's a lot of territory there. So it's my understanding you got, uh, you got the trades there, so you got a lot of union construction, and once it gets on online, you got the UAW that will be involved in that. And didn't Ford, didn't Ford make some uh, announcement that they wanted the union involved and there might have been some pushback i know your lawmakers aren't what you call union friendly over there can you uh can you no. share what happened there billy well uh, the ford motor company uh, has a really good relationship with the united auto workers and uh, they are more than inclined to allow the workers there do what's called card check and, and have a union which is you know going to happen i mean it's going to happen uh so you know it, it they are they are much uh much more inclined to ha- to actually have union workers well our uh, our legislators uh that you know they they don't see that Ford has the right to decide so there for a while they were trying to pass legislation that said car check was illegal and um you know that that Ford they were going to hold incentive money away from Ford if they decided to allow that to happen. They have backed off on that. But we are concerned because this year uh, the legislature just uh, actually really just convened last week. Uh, they they cut the filing dates for bills. Normally, you know, it's a little bit longer time, but they cut them. And so this year we have what? It's called a caption bill. We have a lot of caption bills. And a caption bill, what happens when when a, uh, a legislator files a caption bill, it opens the entire statute. To give you an example of how that works, a few years ago, uh, they under education, they filed a caption bill, and it was what it was titled was is bicycle safety, helmets for bicyclists. But what they were really after was, is because it opened up the entire education statute, was a way to go after teachers and their union dues. It, it, it's a, it's an amazing way for them to kind of keep us off guard. Uh, uh, and we, like I said, they they cut the filing date. In fact, today is the filing deadline in the Senate, the House. I take over the House today, and I think the Senate next Friday. Uh, so if you don't have bills filed, you can't. You, you can't file a bill, but when they see these short deadlines, they just file a bunch of caption bills. Mm-hmm. And and so we, we have to be real careful about what statutes they open. And they've done several this time that we were kind of keeping our eyes on uh, to make sure that they don't pull a fast one and try to do the card check again or, or you know, do away with dues deduction or start this craziness where they're going to have you recertify your union every year. You know, we've seen all those tactics and uh, before, not just here in the state, but around the country. So, uh, yeah, we we have some uh, we have a legislature that uh, has become so business friendly that they really and truly uh, walked away from working people. And, and, and you know, we, we're fortunate in this state that. You know, we we do. We have a construction boom. It, it's everywhere. All the major cities, you know, people are moving here in droves. Uh, 
that that has kept us going, and yeah. it, and it's kind of a, a, a Trojan horse, so to speak. It makes everything look good, um, but in the end, they they are they are moving business out to the forefront, and 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 they're they're actually what I call hiding the pee. They're shifting the burden uh, from corporations to the people, and most people don't understand it. And, yeah. and sooner or later, that bill's going to come due, and it's going to fall on the working people of this state. Billy, it sounds to me that they're taking credit for that business boom in the state of Tennessee because they suppressed the unions, and been, and they've been doing that for a long time. I want to talk more about how they enshrined right to work in the Constitution. But don't you feel that's uh, that's their M.O. down there in, in Tennessee? Sure. It, uh they what they want they want they want a low wage uh state that that doesn't uh really and truly even though you hear them talk about education you know they don't they don't put funding in education they they want to privatize education but they want a they want a low wage state that they can attract business give millions and millions uh, up to a billion dollars to to our our automaker down in Chattanooga and 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 then shift the burden of that mm-hmm. off to to the taxpayers i mean that's i mean we, our infrastructure our roads we used to have the best roads in the country and and i i don't know that that's still the case but yeah they 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 and and it and it has to do with labor unions you know it's yeah. about control uh it's about making sure that that workers don't have a voice in the workplace and uh as long as they can do that they can control us and as long as they're controlling us and and some of that's our own doings i mean we 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 have to take our own bit of responsibility there um in, in the fact that that we haven't always done our best at getting out and making ourselves in seen in the public in a positive light billy you're absolutely right Unions have been demonized ridiculously over the years, and and I don't see any end to it. I really don't. Billy Dykus joining us on our live line. He is the president of the Tennessee AFL-CIO. Website is tnaflcio.org. We'll be back right after this. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferens. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A.org. Hello from the Communication Workers of America, District 4. We are a labor union representing a vast array of workers in different industries, including the Association of Flight Attendants, Telecommunications, CWA Passenger Services, Public Health Care, and Education Workers, the IUE, CWA Industrial Division, the National Association of Broadcast Employees, the CWA News Guild, not to mention our growing digital sector, and many others. If you're interested in organizing your work group or learning more about what it means to be CWA strong, visit our website at www.cwad4.org. That's CWAD4.org. 
www.unitedautoworkers.org. The United Auto Workers are one of the largest and most diverse unions in North America, with members in virtually every sector of the economy. Learn more about this proud sponsor of our program at uaw.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And don't forget, you can check us out on at least six platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and Stitcher. And when you get an opportunity, just sign up. Receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. Let's go back to our live line rejoin Billy Dykus. Billy is president of the Tennessee AFL-CIO, TNAFLCIO.org is their website. This being President's Day, I'm speaking to a president of a union, and it had a nice bump in union density. The numbers came out earlier this year. A lot of young people organizing. We're seeing that in all parts of the country. Billy, if you don't mind, I want to go back to that Ford project, that Blue Oval. We're talking a 32-square-mile project, 5,000 jobs. Ford wanted the union. They, they said, look, we're going to do this 100% union. But your lawmakers there gave them some pushback. I, I don't understand that part because you got the lawmakers that will bend over backwards. They'll give tax incentives to these corporations to do business in their state. Ford with a long history, as you pointed out, with the UAW, and they still condemn them for being union and bringing bringing the union in there. I I don't understand that part. How do we, okay, you're president of the Tennessee AFL-CIO. I know you don't have all the answers. How do we change that dynamic? You mentioned in the the first segment, we got some work to do here in the AFL-CIO. How do we approach that? How do we educate them on that, Billy? Well, I I think, you know, kind of to part of that question about how how do we approach it, I I think it comes from uh, collectively not just the state of Tennessee, but the South in general. Uh, Because as you you travel around the South and, and, you know, all of us in the southern region, the presence of the AFLs in in the various states, we all have the similar issues. Uh, where the legislatures are anti-union and 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 it's going to start with it's going to have to start with us collectively as a group doing that education that you're talking about uh that that shows people and 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 it's there's multitude of ways to do that getting out in the public helping sponsor and and being a part of local communities especially rural communities where where i think uh, most of the anti-union rhetoric works the best is in the rural communities uh, because there, there's not any factories and there's not uh, that there's not the things that you know you you find in the in the larger communities and around the major cities. So the rural communities really and truly tend to be more anti-union than pro-union, which is kind of odd because. They probably need a union worse than than anybody, right? But but it it it's going to start with a common message, not just here in Tennessee, but across the South, and and, and pushing to to try to roll back seventy five. I mean, it's been it's seventy five years of anti union rhetoric since right to work started rolling in the states in the South, um, and so. You know, it, it, it's, it's, I don't have all the answers, and, and sometimes I, I struggle with a single answer. But, but in the end, it, it, it's going to be have to be a collective thing that starts 
uh, around the south uh, and and moves from the south actually into the other parts of the country. Because what you see in, even in the other parts of the country is into the tradition-rich union areas, these legislatures, uh, especially when they change from one party to the other, have a tendency to start attacking right the right-to-work issues. Uh, and, and so that movement is afoot. And, and the Republican Party, let's just say it how it is, the Republican Party has been very creative in their ways of convincing people that, that unions are no longer necessary, that, you know, we, that we're lazy, that, we, we, that we're the ones. We're the yeah. ones that caused all the factories to close. And, and uh, you know, it, 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 we have to find a way. And, and, and there again, COVID, I think, you know, kind of backtracking, COVID kind of helped open people's eyes because, you know, people. I think people had started to think, well, you know, we really don't need unions. They're not useful anymore. But then when they saw what was going on and how, how people were being treated, it kind of opened their eyes a little bit more. So we, well, now that we've got that wedge in the door, we're going to have to kind of kick that door open and start really and truly pushing harder to try to uh, get out people like myself. Not And like I said, not just in, you know, uh, these meetings in around Davidson County or in Hamilton County in Chattanooga or Shelby County in Memphis or Knox County in Knoxville, but out to the smaller rural areas. And, and and become a part of the fabric of those areas so that we can build something and, and start to try to push and get them to understand that, hey, this, legis- this legislature is giving away your tax dollars. You're, you're living in a rural area. You know, we have we, – we not only lead the country in many things like minimum wage jobs, but we also have had more hospitals closed than any other state in this country. And, and I, our rural communities are suffering – big time so we have the opportunities we've just got to get creative on how we reach out to those people and and to pull them in to see that that collectively we we're strong when it, whenever they keep us divided between the haves and have nots and the unions and working people then then we're all going to end up suffering in the long in the long yeah. run yeah, it's almost like the right to work states primarily in the South have to unite together collectively and fight what's going on here in these legislatures. And, you know, we did a number of shows on this Amendment 1 that you uh, that you went through last fall, and that was to enshrine right to work in your state constitution. And you, the, the numbers, the statistics, it, obviously people didn't understand this because I have them in front of me right now on average. Workers make $11,058 less per year in states like yours in Tennessee with laws like Amendment 1, enshrining right to work in the state constitution. For an hour, that's $5.28 an hour. That's a lot of money. A lot of money. Yes. In uh, right to work states, the average poverty level is 11.2% higher than non-right to work states. Right-to-work states spend 31.6% less on public schools and deaths, workplace deaths, in right-to-work states are 56.5% higher. Now, I know a number of unions went forth with that message. We talked to the Teamsters about that and a couple of times, as a matter of fact, but it didn't get through. And as a result, and, and you probably heard this, it seems like people vote against their own 
best interests. I'm sure I'm sure that happened in your state. So now you have right to work enshrined in your state constitution. So there's no there's no getting out of that, is there? No. Not unless some legislation is passed uh in the United States Congress. Uh we we are uh, probably forever burdened with right to work, uh, and and you said it. It, it it's a there's a reason that public education suffers, and and there there's a reason that that poverty is. So I, and and it's all by design. Um, and and there again, the people that that need us the most, like you say, they vote against their own self interest, and and. You know, all these years, right to work is, is about paying union dues. You know, you're being forced to pay for something you shouldn't have to have. And and that, that was the most difficult thing to overcome. And, and when you tell people they have a right not to belong to the union anyway, they, they're like, I didn't know that. Or, or you tell them that, look, even people that don't pay union dues are afforded the right to be represented if, if they have issues and, and people are like, well, that ain't right. But, but in the end, it, even though you talk to a few, that message has not resonated to the, to the voting population. And, and, and it just, you know, of course we, you know, there again, you know, we, we were one of the lowest voter turnout states in the country. I, I think 2016, only 11% of the registered voters voted. Um, so we, you know, we we have a multitude of issues, and, and and it goes really and truly. I'll be honest with you, it goes all the way back to slavery. I know that mm-hmm. sounds crazy, but it goes all the way back to slavery. It, we are we're in a a weird way, no different than we were in in the days of slavery, where a small majority of people enjoy the ability to maneuver the wealth in a way that forces people to continue to have to live the way they live. And, and, you know, they can call it whatever they want to call it. Uh, slavery may not, well, we just took that out of the constitution too. Uh, you know, they, they, they are still doing what they've been doing in the South for hundreds of years. And, and, uh, like I said, you, you hate to think it. I mean, I love the South, uh, I do. I love the South. Uh, it's a great place to live, and I love the people here. But uh, you know, we we have several hundred years of living under a, a, a system that has allowed a lot of people with money and power to influence us uh, to the point that that we make bad decisions, and and they've discouraged us. To, from from even trying to stand up and vote and do the right things for ourselves, and and that's that's in a that's a sad state of affairs, and and that's one of the things that that we here at at the state federation in Tennessee have pledged ourselves to at least try to leave a legacy that that says that working people mean something, and that 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 our work should mean something to the people that we work for. Uh, I say this a lot, you know, we, you know, we, we, they should not have to tell us we should be happy. They should be happy that we're coming and laboring for them. Right. 
you know. And so, you know, we we got a lot of work to do, uh, and we're going to get there. We're going to get there because I, I honestly believe that these young people are going to change things. Yeah, now, I, yeah. I will tell you this. They go down a rabbit hole pretty quick, so you have to be careful with them. <laughs> but you, 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 you can, you cannot, you cannot take away their their enthusiasm and activism, uh, and and that's good to see. Kind of reminds me of the '60s in yep. somewhat some. I'm a child of the 60s, too. We saw a lot there. I mean, so much happened back then. A lot of activism, and uh, then the suppression came in the 70s, and then Reagan fired yeah. the air traffic controllers. I mean, we can go down that rabbit yeah. hole. I don't want to do yeah. that, but we just have to We just have to be positive. We have to move forward. we got to often, I say, move the needle in the right direction. So, brother, I'm going to let you go. I know you got a lot of work to do. You take care. Happy President's Day to you, my brother. And uh, let's stay in touch on all these issues, okay? Well, thank you, and and I appreciate you giving me a little time to to speak, and and I'm here for you anytime you need me. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we're going to go to Seattle, Washington, and join Jacob Grumbach. Now, Jacob is an associate professor of political science at the University of Washington in Seattle. And he's got a lot of connections to organized labor. He's going to talk about protecting democracy by bolstering organized labor. That's coming up next. Don't go away. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Layuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of LIUNA, the Laborers International Union of North America, delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with LIUNA. Find out what it takes for LIUNA to keep America running at LIUNA.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. The Heat and Frost Insulators and Allied Workers are proud to be a title sponsor for America's Workforce Radio. The Insulators Union is leading the way in the mechanical insulation industry, fire-stopping, and infectious disease control. Regarded as North America's energy conservation specialist, these professionals are known for their professional work and dedication. You can learn more about the Insulators Union at insulators.org. From the Golden Gate Bridge to the St. Louis Gateway Arch, the Sears Tower, and just about every building, bridge, and structure in between, our cities and towns wouldn't be the same without iron workers. With over 3,000 contractors employing more than 130,000 highly trained iron workers and 20,000 apprentices, the Iron Workers Union stands ready and able to shape the future of our skylines. Learn more at ironworkers.org. Iron Workers, the sky's the limit. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. Let's go to Washington State right now. And joining us on our live line is an associate professor of political science at the University of Washington in Seattle. That would be Jacob Grumbach. I like to call him Jake. His research investigates the political economy of the United States, focus on democracy inequality, American federalism, and statistical methods. In fact, last year he came out with a book, Laboratories Against Democracy, which investigated the nationalization of state politics over the past generation. 
And a lot of what we're going to talk about today is protecting democracy by bolstering organized labor. There was a recent piece in the Nation magazine about this. This being a union show caught my interest, so that's why we have Professor Grumbach on our show today. Professor, welcome to America's Workforce. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on the show. Great to be here. So before we get into your article, you know what caught my attention here, the nationalization of state politics over the past generation. That's a lot to uh, tear apart here. What, um, What happened here in the last 20 years, especially when it comes to protecting our democracy and what's been going on in various legislatures? Go ahead. Exactly. So the U.S. political system is actually pretty unique when you look at other democracies. The U.S. puts voting rights and legislative districting or gerrymandering and sort of vote counting and certification, all of those sort of rules of democracy are actually done at the state level in the U.S., whereas in many countries they're done nationally. But over the past generation, what we've really seen is that the political parties, the Democratic and Republican parties, have become real national teams that are battling over the direction of the country nationally. But our institutional rules of democracy are still at the state level. So what we're seeing now is that the national parties are really using those state governments to advantage themselves in this national tug of war. And as Mm -hmm. a consequence, uh, in some states over the past uh, couple of decades, we've seen real threats to democracy with more extreme gerrymandering that reduces the sort of equality of people's voice at the ballot box and uh, restrictions on access to voting as well. And to some extent, even a threat of potentially fully stealing a presidential election at the extreme. Yeah, which we heard a whole lot about in 2020, and then we had the insurrection on uh, January 6th of 2021. You say in your article, though, that 2022 was a decent year for democracy. Now, Now, why do you say it was a decent year? That's right. So compared to the 2010s, You know, there are these redistricting redistricting cycles where state governments, either commissions or legislatures, they draw districts for the U.S. House in Congress and for state legislatures. And in the 2010s, some states like North Carolina and Wisconsin really set new records for how much sort of partisan bias there was in their districting. They really advantaged the Republican Party, where even if the state as a whole voted more for Democrats, the legislature and their U.S. House seats would be overwhelmingly Republican. And that's had huge effects on really empowering these legislatures to take unpopular actions like banning abortion, even when majorities of constituents really don't want to ban abortion. Same thing with restrictions on labor in the 2010s in states like Wisconsin. Um, You know, labor was really popular during that time, even when Scott Walker was attacking labor unions in Wisconsin. So in 2020, However, the new census came out and the districts, because of uh, the way the sort of courts interpreted these districts, the districts are overall fairer than in the 2010s, but still sometimes gerrymandered. Similarly, uh, many of the sort of uh, most aggressively anti-democracy candidates did lose their elections in 2022. And finally, last, when it comes to labor, some states like Michigan It now has a unified Democratic government in Michigan, and that new uh, government is proposing to repeal the state's right-to-work law passed about 10 years prior. And that's actually hugely consequential, not just for 
again, building a middle class and reducing economic inequality, all the things we know labor unions do, but also for protecting democracy, as uh, some of my research and research from others shows labor actually and uh, attacks on labor like right to work laws really do threaten democracy. You know, it's funny you bring that up because I've been talking about that on the show. That that was certainly what happened in Michigan was a bright spot. And hopefully, if they overturn right to work, which I think they're going to do, that's going to send a message, a powerful message. And uh, I'd love to see that happen. I'd love to report on that. So let, let's get into it a little deeper here. Uh, protecting yeah. democracy by bolstering organized labor. Now, you know, you've been following labor for, for quite some time, and, and the ranks are just not what they used to be. And I always bring this up on the show. It was in the 50s. I want to say 1953, 54, there were one out of three people that belonged to a labor union. And you think about that time, very powerful middle class. And the middle class was strong throughout the 60s, throughout the 70s, and then it started cascading downward to where we are today. Now, in the government sector, yeah, union density is high. But in the private sector, no, we're talking like, what, 7% maybe? So you're following that, that trend going down, and at the same time, democracy is being threatened. So we have to, I guess, do a whole lot more organizing into to protect democracy? Is, is that where we're going with all this? Yeah. So when we think about threats to democracy, we don't often think about the labor movement and organized labor as being central to protecting democracy. But what uh, some of my research with this uh, professor from Princeton, Paul Freimer, as well as many others research is starting to show is actually that when you take away labor unions, what that does for ordinary working people is where you get your sort of connections in politics and your identity in politics is no longer as a worker with solidarity with your fellow workers, thinking about your economic life and how public policy might actually affect your wages, your health benefits, your retirement, and so forth. Instead, you tend to turn towards culture war politics, which is not as connected to policy or the sort of material realities of your life, but rather fighting over, uh, you know, conflict over uh, race and culture, over, uh, you know, issues of uh, transgender rights and pronouns or, you know, the uh, panics about critical race theory in schools. These are uh, not issues of wages, health care, or life and death sort of issues that labor unions really tie people to in politics. So uh, laws that have restricted labor union organizing, like right to work laws, as well as general union busting by employers and support from governments in that union busting has really left democracy vulnerable to this sort of culture war politics, which tends to reduce the quality of democracy. And that's on top of all the things we already know about labor unions from research in economics, political science, and elsewhere, that labor unions absolutely statistically are shown to increase wages for working class people, reduce economic inequality like we've seen since the 1970s, as you talked about, where sort of billionaires have seen huge, huge growth to their incomes, but ordinary people's wages have stagnated. And also inequality across race and gender groups, too. When you think about how to create more racial equality or gender equality in society, when Scott Walker attacked labor unions in Wisconsin and reduced collective bargaining, what happened immediately, there's a great new economics paper by Barbara Biasi and Heather Sarsons 
that shows that what happened is suddenly you see a gender gap in wages in Wisconsin because of the demise of collective bargaining that really rose wages for all workers. So again, labor unions important for all sorts of uh, sort of economic outcomes for people and building a healthy middle class, but also in reducing the capacity for this sort of culture war politics that is really destabilizing the political system. Well, I'll tell you one thing. Those culture wars have definitely made an impact on on labor. I, I talk to a lot of business managers. They're really frustrated, especially around election time, because there's a lot of their members that say, you know what, you, you don't understand what's going on out there. I mean, this is by design. This is by they want to confuse people. And in more times than not, and I'm sure you've seen this in, in some of your research, have you noticed that a lot of union brothers and sisters seem to vote against their very own interests? Have, have you seen that in your research? Absolutely. So that's been, unfortunately, that's been true throughout U.S. history and across the world is that in the U.S., we've really had this struggle to create a multiracial working class coalition that wants to support, you know, increased labor power and rise sort of income and wages for all workers of all kinds across all identities and geographies, right? So we know the theory going back all the way to, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois writing in the early 20th century or, you know, uh, some electoral candidates talk about this, but when there is conflict, when there is racial conflict or gender conflict or conflict over immigration and language in workplaces and between working people, the bosses and the wealthy really win. They use that as a tool to divide the working class, whereas together, you know, the working class together with solidarity could push for policies and increase wages that would raise standards for all workers. So that's a, a sort of historical and lifelong challenge in American politics is to generate that solidarity. But uh, unions have really been the way that that solidarity has been increased to the extent there is a multiracial coalition for raising wages and health care and so much like we saw in the 1950s and 60s, like you saw in the United Auto Workers, for example, in the north, they actually uh, sent people to the civil rights movement in the South uh, were there at the front of Martin Luther King's uh, March on Washington, Walter Ruther of the UAW. This was a time when economic justice was known to go hand in hand with civil rights and sort of racial justice, that if the bosses and the wealthy continued to divide workers on the basis of race, uh, immigration status, and so forth, that this would be uh, bad for all working people. So when we're talking about rebuilding the labor movement right now, that's what uh, the potential is to generate new solidarity for a real working class coalition that is not distracted by, you know, uh, conflict and uh, voting for the person who's going to talk trash on the right person on TV, but rather voting for your wages and your health care. That's what we want. Yep. Now, Liz Shuler took over the presidency after the passing of Rich Trumka. She's been a fireball. She's been on the show a number of times. And she's been talking about what you're talking about. And she wants to, she's, she's got a game plan for organizing. There is a lot of organizing going on. So with that being the case, do you feel that we are in the process of rebuilding the labor movement? 
Yeah, it's a tough call. So, you know, there's some real bright spots across organizing in Amazon and Starbucks workers, um, as well as in uh, the service sector and retail and manufacturing and food service. Um, at the same time, actual union density, that is the percentage of workers in unions, declined again, unfortunately, mostly because manufacturing jobs, it's been, you know, now 50 plus years of this, but manufacturing jobs continue to be outsourced. And those manufacturing jobs are more likely to be unionized than, for example, retail and service industry work or, you know, working at an Amazon warehouse or fulfillment center. So that's still a challenge. And, but that's been a challenge for now, you know, 50, 60 years of uh, outsourcing and manufacturing. But Liz Schuler and uh, previous to her, uh, President Trumpka, they have been on this beat of building new solidarity across kinds of workers, right? We live in a really polarized society where, you know, there's conflict between urban and rural culture. There's uh, conflict between uh, people who are more religious or less religious, right? And the labor movement offers a way to build solidarity between workers across those lines. Liz Schuler seems to know that. President Trump got before that, too, when you think about the campaigns in 2008 and 2012 uh, between Barack Obama and his opponents, uh, Richard Trumka came out very strong during those periods to say, uh, you know, I hear sometimes union workers uh, voting for, you know, Mitt Romney, not because of, you know, they feel like they're going to be helped by his, you know, tax cuts for the wealthy, but because of racial conflict or opposition to rights for immigrants and so forth. And Richard Trumpka was very strong in a number of speeches saying this is dividing workers and it's bad for all of us. And he was absolutely right. Professor, thank you so much for joining us today. Jacob Grumbach, Jake Grumbach, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Washington in Seattle. Do check that article at The Nation magazine, Protect Democracy by Bolstering Organized Labor. And uh, you got me going here. I, I got to pick up your book here, Laboratories Against Democracy by Princeton University Press. I would imagine it's still available. Is that right? It's still available at fine and trashy bookstores near you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Professor. Please keep in touch. All right. Absolutely. Thanks, Ed. And that'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Tomorrow, we'll check in with the Ohio Federation of Teachers and the Operating Engineers in North Carolina. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.